Hi there. I'm Misty Denman, part of the uh, Women in the Word teaching team. So glad to be with you here this um, beautiful day. Have a question for you, and if you're willing to be honest, did anybody or has anybody been surprised at how relevant the book of Numbers is to your everyday life? Yeah. Okay. So um, I've got to tell you a story about how it became very relevant to me yesterday. I'm at the West Campus most of the time, and so we're a week behind in our lessons. So yesterday, we had the lesson that Vanita taught last week, sort of centered around um, the Israelites grumbling and all the ramifications of that. And so last night, we were setting up, and I need to tell you that um, we're not in the normal room that we're nor we would have been in in the past in the evenings, and it's brought some challenges with it. So we were there last night setting up. Vanita's with me. I've got two huge carts full of all the coffee and the snacks and whatever, and we get to the elevator, and the elevator won't work. And it's the only way to get upstairs. There's only the one elevator there. And I stomped my foot, and I said, why is this always so hard? What else could go wrong? And Vanita kind of looked over at me. <laughs> And she kind of went, <laughs> um, and then she paused and said, you don't want to say that. And I thought, yes, I do want to say that. And she said, um, and just kind of stopped. And then I was so embarrassed because four hours before, I had just done the study in the morning, gone through the small group, had my conviction when I heard the lesson about not grumbling. And then I just had to laugh because who would have thought the lesson out of the book of Numbers would have been so relevant to me on that day and what short memories we have as well, um, or at least a short memory that I have. And um, it turned out fine. We had some strong women who helped us bring those coffee pots up and down and helped women who had a hard time coming up and down the stairs. But um, boy, there is no doubt that all of God's word is relevant to us and um, it's been fun studying it. And the truth is chapters 13 and 14 are um, really, really applicable to our lives as well. So I can't wait to jump into them with you. If you would open up your Bibles with me to Numbers chapter 13. We're gonna read a lot of this story together. Um, it has a great narrative to it and is easy to understand, but boy, does it have some deep truths in it. Chapter 13 tells the story of those 12 men who go in to spy out the promised land of Canaan that God has promised for hundreds of years would be the people of Israel's forever. And they're going to re go see what the land looks like and then bring a report back to their people. Then chapter 14 continues with that story and it's really all about the ramifications in the aftermath of what that report was. Uh, and every bit of these two chapters teach us that no matter what it is that we face, we always have a choice, either to put fear above our faith or our faith above our fear. So let's read chapter uh, 13, beginning in verse one, if you wanna follow along with me. We're gonna skip around a little bit. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. 
And then it goes on to list who those men were, one from each of the tribes. And then pick up again with me in verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the um, Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now it was the time of the season of the first ripe grapes. So that would be in the middle of summer during harvest time. Now, if you would, skip down with me to verse 25. Um, Just before that, it tells the cities and the places that they went. And then it says, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And then he goes on to um, describe all the different people groups were there. And it says, but Caleb, in verse 30, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. And they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out, it is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. I love this story. It's gonna be so fun to talk about. The first thing I wanna talk about is in verse one. It seems like this spying expedition was God's idea. But when this exact same story is told in the book of Deuteronomy, sort of from a little bit of a different perspective and with some more details, we find out that in truth, when God was ready to send the people into the promised land, he really just said, go. Look with me on your verse sheet at Deuteronomy 1. It gives us some more insight here. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near to me, and this is Moses speaking, and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again by, by uh, the way by which we must go up and into the cities to which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe. So the people asked to go and explore the land beforehand. Moses agreed with them, asked God's permission for that, and God said, if you wanna do that, go have a look. We find out in verse two that all of the men chosen are leaders of their tribes. They were probably well-regarded, well-known men. These aren't the same 12 leaders or chiefs that brought the offering to the tabernacle a few chapters back. This group probably um, also had um, some renown within their people and were a representation of all of the different tribes. But this was gonna be a pretty long and arduous trip 
trip um, on foot covering a lot of distance. So these men were probably um, just really physically able to um, take on that task. And I think that they were probably thought of as very brave at the onset as well. And when they start out, these men are just south of Canaan. All of Israel is camped out very close to that promised land that God has um, ready to give his people. They travel, they leave on this trip, they travel all through the region, circle back again. They got to see lots of different parts of it. And at the end of that 40-day trip, they return home with a report for the whole community. Everyone wanted to know uh, what it was they saw. And honestly, I think if you look at this story with no prior knowledge or assumptions, what the spies say and do next is pretty surprising. Here's these people who have over the last couple of years miraculously been um, rescued from slavery, miraculously been provided for with food every day, have miraculously been led through the desert with God in this visible um, cloud and who um, have been led by a man, Moses, who God has spoken to directly and face to face. And so when God, in my mind, says, hey, I've got this great place for you to live and all you have to do is go and take it, it seems like they would say, yes, let's go do that. And maybe the worst that would happen would be they didn't break camp the way that they were supposed to all orderly and people leave things behind and forget things and it's all chaotic. But that is not what happened. Instead, these leaders who report back that the land is fertile and good, um, and that proof, of course, was this single cluster of grapes that was so enormous that they draped it over a wooden pole and two grown men had to carry it between them. Can you even imagine one cluster of grapes that it would be that big? bring that back to show what great land it was. Then they also described the land as flowing with milk and honey, which was a common phrase that the people would have understood to mean this place of abundant natural resources. It had everything they needed um, and just great promise in it for a fruitful, abundant, um, productive uh, life. One commentary I read had this um, suggestion and I thought it sounded, um, it rang true to me that God probably chose this exact time of the year to bring them to the promised land and have them see it in full for the first time because it was the time of the year that the land was at its most fertile and beautiful. And it made me think about, you know, if you came to Fort Worth, North Texas for the first time in mid-April. And you might think it was a far more lovely place and be more excited about it when there's wildflowers along the road and everything's new green and the temperature is perfect than if you came in, you know, the middle of July and walked around for 40 days. So I think it was, um, I think it was meant to show Uh, the people, what a beautiful thing God was giving them. The land was fertile and good, but, but they tell um, all of Israel that the people are just too strong to overcome. Now this report that the spies brought back, I think is the first example of true fake news. They, (laughs) there were cities and there were people living there 
But it seemed like the men in giving their report deliberately list each individual group that was there uh, to emphasize their numbers. And in truth, archeological evidence suggests that before Israel did go to live in that land, there were neither very uh, fortified cities or all that many people living there. Now, one thing I think is interesting is how the uh, spies mentioned the Nephilim. Now, the Nephilim are a group of people who are only mentioned one other time in the Bible, and that's in Genesis chapter six, before the flood. And they're described basically as this group of giant, um, very violent people. And they're part of what was wiped out in the flood and why God brought that flood. In Moses' time, the Nephilim have kind of taken on this um, sort of mythic stature. And when they're brought up, what would be conjured up in the people's mind would be this idea of these giant warring people. It can't be true that they were there because they were wiped out before the the flood. And so it seems as though this was a deliberate tactic to scare the people. And then it's very interesting to me that the spies say, we seemed like little grasshoppers to all the people that were there. These guys were spies and they weren't going from town to town saying, hey, we're here because we're about to take over your land and you know, introducing themselves and whatever. There would really be no way for them to know or understand how the inhabitants of the land thought of them. So again, this is conjecture that they've brought up. And we could pick apart their report even more, but you get the idea of this, that it was um, calculated to be um, an exaggeration and calculated to scare the people of Israel as much as they were scared. Now, of the 12 leaders who were supposed to just go in, check out the land, see what it's like, bring back a report right before everybody went into the land, only two of them, Caleb and Joshua, believed that no matter what they saw, they could and they should follow God's plan. Now, all 12 of those spies were in the same place at the same time. They all saw the exact same thing, but the 10 responded to what they saw totally differently than Joshua and Caleb did. The 10 and the two had totally different perspectives of, and therefore responses of what they saw. Now in chapter 14, we go on to find out why they had such different responses. So look with me now at chapter 14, and we will read verses one through 10. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry. This is when they've heard the report. And the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua and Caleb, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation, the land which we passed through to spy it out, it is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, 
He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for their bread to us, which means we can devour them. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Three times here, Israel refuses to trust God. And except for four men, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb, all of Israel participates in this sinful rebellion after hearing the spies report. They all weep and grumble. You know, there's that strong thread of grumbling throughout Numbers. Obviously, it's sort of been on my mind um, as we learned about it yesterday. And then really, as I've honestly, as I've studied all of Numbers, um, you know, every family has certain values, I think, that are particular to them. And this idea of grumbling or complaining has stood out to me a lot. Um, I happen to come from a family, last night notwithstanding, that um, values not complaining very highly. And I remember that in at least the last three generations. I remember that my great-grandmother, very much in my grandmother, um, and my mom as well. And as I was reading this and thinking about the um, Israelites just grumbling all night long and complaining and saying, I wish it were different or whatever, I thought about my grandmother who was normally a, a pretty quiet and gentle woman, but she did not like complaining. And I am telling you, you could get two words into griping about something and she would raise her eyebrows and her eyes would flash and she would say, you quit that belly aching right now. And um, I can't, I just have wondered what would have happened if my granny had been in that group of people, if some of that might've been put to a stop before it got so out of control. Um, Vanita played the part of my grandmother last night. The most upon it, the... Um, the most astonishing thing to me in uh, this whole story, I think, is that they claim that they want to return to slavery. For 400 years, Israel um, suffered under really deep oppression, under um, um, back-breaking and brutal work. And it was these people who were there. It's only been two years since they have left that. Only two years since God has rescued them. And they're talking about going back. And I think that's because what they saw and the fear that is gripping them just totally distorts their thinking. It was only these four great men out of over two million that could see this situation with faith rather than with fear. Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb, these four are convinced. It's more than possible to take the land. These four are convinced that it will be God who will do what he said he would do. And no matter what the circumstances look like from their limited human perspective, these four believe that God is more than able. And they desperately try to convince the crowd um, to also believe God. But those crowds were in such an ugly frenzy that they go so far as to even want to kill Joshua and Caleb by attempting to stone them. But God had other plans. Before anyone can actually go through with this sort of mob plan, 
God intervenes. He begins to speak to Moses through that cloud of glory over the tabernacle, and it seems like that was enough to stop the people in their tracks and sort of change course from stoning um, Caleb and Joshua. So what is it that's going on here? And why was it, why was it that those 12 spies who all saw that exact same set of circumstances on that expedition, two of them reacted differently than the others? The 10 looked at a potentially hard situation because there would have been obstacles. It wasn't as bad as they said it was, but there would have been hard days and hard things about taking that land, and they reacted with fear that overcame their faith. Joshua and Caleb looked out and they understood that it didn't matter what they saw because if God was with them and for them and on their side, nobody else could be against them and their faith overcame whatever fear they had. I think there must have been so much excitement and anticipation as those spies originally set out. Remember that that whole community is encamped really close, just on the southern edge of the promised land. And Moses had told them, God said, it's time, it's, it's time to go home now. As a people, they would have looked forward to this event for hundreds of years. It was Abraham, their forefather, who had been given the original promise of uh, that land. That promise was unbreakable. It had been made by God to Abraham and it's recorded in Genesis 17. So let's look at it. God says this, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And here's what they should have remembered. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And, and since this is spoken in the past, he is, their God would be the people he's talking to right then. Now God repeated that promise. He didn't just give it once. He repeated that promise many times to the people of Israel. And you find those recorded later in Genesis, also in Exodus, also here in Numbers, and the people have been told every time and he gives this promise that it's God himself that gets the job done, that has the power behind the promise. Now, without a doubt, they had a part to play. They would have to be obedient. They would have to march in. They would have to be soldiers. But God takes on all of the responsibility for the success of their mission. It never depended on their own strength or might. Now, why should they believe God now? One real good reason is they've watched him keep his word many times in the past. They've watched him protect and rescue his people in miraculous ways. We just talked about some of those. Um, they've watched, as he said, I will make you a mighty people. Um, they were enslaved and started from one family. And that oppression that should have decimated them as a people and left them with really almost nothing, instead, they have grown into this mighty nation. That was a promise of God that he kept that shouldn't have been possible. 
Just two years before this story today, God said, I will rescue you from the Egyptians. And they watched as God sent those 10 plagues that brought Pharaoh to his knees. And they watched as God told them, if you'll just ask the Egyptians for their gold and silver, they'll give it to you. And they asked and they were given it. And there was no good reason for that. And then they watched as God parted the Red Sea and allowed them to walk across on dry land and then closed it behind them so that the Egyptians couldn't pursue them. None of that happened um, by their own might or strength. That was God miraculously leading them to safety. Israel didn't have to stage a rebellion and take up arms against their oppressors or against Pharaoh. They didn't have to make boats and get themselves across the Red Sea. All they had to do was trust and obey God as he made that happen. So they've watched God do the impossible over and over again. That should have made a difference in how they saw their present circumstances. Okay, but there's more. One of the towns, and we had um, skipped over that section, that the spies passed through on their uh, journey there and their exploration of Canaan was Hebron. And that is really a hugely important um, fact and um, part of their faith. That is the town, if you might remember it from our study of Genesis, that um, Abraham bought a burial plot there to bury his wife, Sarah. And he... Sarah, Jacob, Isaac, and their wives, these are the founders of the faith, are all buried there. And when Abraham bought that land, it meant his family owned that section of Canaan into perpetuity. So as the spies go and look at the land, they passed through a place that their people actually already owned and had owned for hundreds of years. And in my mind, that should have been a great faith builder and a great um, place of excitement. Unfortunately, it wasn't. When the 12 spies go out to preview the promised land and see the obstacles in their way, those 10 really forgot all of those things, all of their recent past, all of the promises God has kept, all of the hundreds of years of passing on his promise from generation um, to generation, and they only see the hard stuff that's right in front of them. They only see the unknown of just how hard it will be to conquer the people already living there. And I honestly think they've sort of turned inward and almost started obsessing on their own inadequacy Uh, They weren't trained military men. They weren't warriors. These are a group of former slaves who are now traveling nomads. They didn't probably have it in them on their own to do this. And I think every negative thing they saw and thought about themselves just started growing bigger and bigger and bigger in their hearts and their minds until God himself seemed smaller and smaller and smaller. And they were just sure this thing could not be done. Only Joshua and Caleb try to convince Israel to obey God and not give in to that fear. Joshua and Caleb saw those same cities that would need to be conquered. They had also spent the majority of their lives as slaves, but they had not forgotten God's promises. And they hadn't forgotten that God continually takes care of his people, not in the limited ways that we can care for one another 
but in unlimited, miraculous ways that only he can. They knew the truth of Luke 1.37 long before um, it had been written in God's word. For nothing will be impossible with God. And they knew the truth of Romans 8.31. And then... And what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In fact, they really say almost the same thing themselves. If you look at verse nine, they say, do not fear the people of the land. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Caleb and Joshua call everyone's fear what it actually is, which was rebellion against God. Despite what God said and what he asked them to do, they willfully choose to not believe him and willfully choose to not obey him. God has told them to go, um, and when they choose not to go, that is rebellion, and that has terrible consequences. The thing I love here is uh, that everyone is so furious with this men when they come to try to uh, stone them. God intervenes to protect them. God takes care of his people when we stand up for them, uh, or stand up for him, even under the direst of circumstances. Now, sometimes that means God calls his people home to rescue them from danger, and sometimes that mean, means intervening in their lives so they can live to um, see another day. Either way, God takes care of the faithful. You know, as Amy reminded us a couple of weeks ago, we aren't as different from the Israelites as we'd like to think we are. In fact, we're an awful lot the same. So the weaknesses, that their weaknesses that glare out um, at us are our weaknesses as well. They're my weaknesses, even though I wish they were not. And we all have things that God has either called us to that we have chosen just to not do out of fear or maybe that we just keep putting off and keep thinking of reasons to not do it yet, to not do it yet because we look at the potential difficulties um, and just see fear and sometimes that's really big stuff like um, walking through and staying in a difficult marriage that's going to require more sacrifices and work than we think possible. Sometimes it is knowing that we're gonna live the rest of our lives without that thing that we're addicted to. And sometimes it's smaller things that feel really big at the time, like um, cutting off a difficult relationship or friendship that isn't God honoring. You know, I don't think it's any accident that I was assigned these two chapters to teach because they've been a real constant uh, reminder and conviction to me as I've studied a little more than, it's been about two and a half years ago now. My husband, we made this decision together as a family, left um, the career he was in and started his own business. It had been a dream for many, many years. And I was a little bit scared when we started out because I don't like big changes and you never know kind of what's coming. But it was also a fun and exciting time. In the last um, two and a half years, although I absolutely, I believe it has been God's plan for our life and he said yes to this endeavor have been... Um, tiring and they have been exhausting and they have often been um, hard and scary. 
And there have been times when I have looked at the future and my heart has just been gripped with fear. And there have been more times than that when I have sort of looked at my current circumstances and wished we could go back to the way it was, even though I know this is God's plan for our life and going backwards would not be his best for us. And when I allow myself to look at my current circumstances, my fear is bigger than my faith, particularly when I think, I don't think that the hard and, um, and scary part of it is over yet. But when I can discipline myself to look into the word of God instead of at my own circumstances, words like Psalm 28 just mean the world to me. Look at it with me. The Lord is my strength and my shield and him my heart trusts and I am helped. And I will tell you that those words and words like it mean more to me now than they ever have in my life and I'm grateful for that. Also, when I discipline myself to remember the ways that God has provided for me every day of my life and every day of this particular difficult journey, it makes me brave because the God who created the whole universe who has taken care of me every day before is going to take care of me every day in the future. And what was true for the Israelites is true for us as well. Faith overcomes fear when we really believe God's word. And faith overcomes fear when we remember the powerful ways he has cared for us in our past. Now the story continues as God responds to Israel's rebellion. And you can look at me, uh, with me as I read chapters, chapter 14 beginning now in verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them and I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. God is deeply angry at his people's lack of faith and Moses again shows the most remarkable leadership for the second time in his life. He has been offered um, by God this opportunity to uh, start the nation of Israel over again with him. Moses again shows concern not for himself, but for his people and for the reputation of God. Instead of taking God up on that offer, he pleads with God to forgive the nation's sin. So drop your eyes down with me to verse 19. Please pardon the iniquity of the people. This is Moses speaking to God. According to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers." and none of those who despised me shall see it. God will forgive his people, but there will also be grievous consequences for their disobedience. These people will never see the promised land. Now pick back up with me in verse 29. God says, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness and 
of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land that I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones, the ones that you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lie in the wilderness, according to the number of the days by which you spied out the land. Forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear the iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do, all, surely this will I do to all the wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall come to a full end and they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land, they died by a plague before the Lord. The seriousness of God's tone here is not to be missed. These consequences are harsh, but they are not out of proportion to the people's sin. Their refusal to trust and obey God um, brings with it the judgment that it deserves. Now, we know all of us from our own experiences with God that he forgives us. Sometimes he even spares us of the consequences of our sin. Other times he forgives us, but he does allow the consequences to run their course. And as painful as those consequences can be, the truth is they often do good work in shaping us into women of wisdom and maturity. And this is one of those times that Israel needs to experience the harsh consequences of their sin and learn from it because it will prepare them, continue to prepare them to be a nation holy and set apart from him. Those years that they suffer in the wilderness, that they could have been experiencing the joy of home will teach them powerful lessons that God uses for their good down the road. God again, I think, shows how seriously he takes their rebellion and their um, distrust when those 10 chiefs, the leaders who should have led the people toward God, instead um, led the people away from God, all die of a plague. And man, would that have not been the most, um, I don't know, striking message that all the people would have known about. In God's kingdom, he does hold his leadership to high standards, and God could not allow this poisonous lack of faith from the leaders to any longer infiltrate um, and infect his people. Now, the children of those who rebelled against God had to also wait the, the many years before they entered the land. They suffered alongside their parents because as often the case, our sin has ripple effect and consequences on other people's lives as well. But, you know, those children had the really powerful opportunity to spend years learning um, that what God says is true, that when God says go, we should go, that when God says trust me, we should trust him. And those lessons had the um, ability to shape 
those children into mature followers of God in their lives. Now, I want the story to finish here, not just so we can go have lunch, but because I think it would be a much tidier ending, but it's not over. So look with me at verse 39. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, what we just read about them dying in the wilderness, the people mourned greatly, And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are, we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised for we have sinned. But Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when you will not succeed? Do not go up for the Lord is not among you lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you and you shall fall by the sword because you have turned back from following the Lord The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up into the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. And then those who lived in the hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Now, um, sorry, I lost my place. Right after everybody said that they can't do this that they, and said that Canaan's full of giants, they'll kill our wives and our babies. And God says, fine, you know what? Have it your way. You will not go into the land. They decide, never mind. We were wrong. We're gonna go anyway. And Moses, in his great leadership, tries to stop them and says, no, do not go because God is not with you. And without his protection, you will die but they presumed to go anyway. And that word presumed there implies um, proud arrogance. They understood now that they have forfeited this great opportunity to go um, into the promised land. And now they think they can go without God's help. Now Israel, remember, is only supposed to break camp and move when those trumpets sound and when the cloud moves and guides them and leads them on their way. Instead, they set out on their own. God is not with them. So not only are they defeated in battle, just as God said they would be, just as Moses said they would be, no doubt they suffered great casualties, but they're actually chased about 100 miles south. This was a terrible defeat for them. And they've swung from this irrational fear that God wasn't capable of defeating their enemies to this irrational fear that future is just gonna be too hard um, without being able to go into the promised land and that God's plan for them now would be unbearable. And so again, they take matters into their own hands. And the truth was, although they would suffer those 38 years in the wilderness wandering around, God would be with them there. He had forgiven them and his presence would remain with them during those hard years. It would be far better to wander in the wilderness with God in their midst, continuing to lead them to go off on their own without God's protection. When they turned their backs on God and went their own way, they were immediately defeated. I think we need not fear or resist God's discipline in our own lives. It grows us up in our faith, just like the loving discipline that we um, use with our kids grows them up in their maturity and faith. Faith overcomes fear. When we 
submit to God's discipline in our lives. Look with me at Hebrews 12. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Now, there is a great epilogue to this story, and I'm glad for that. Otherwise, it would end on a pretty depressing note. In 38 years, after the disobedient generation has died, they'd already been in the wilderness for two years, so they wander for 38 years more, which makes the 40 years that God um, said that they would be there. After those 38 years, Caleb and Joshua will receive their reward. They will enter that beautiful promised land that God had given his people. And after Moses dies, Joshua will assume leadership of and command of the people of Israel. And look at what God says to him in Joshua chapter one. God says, be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then look at how Israel responds. And they, all of Israel, answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Faith overcomes fear when we trust that God blesses our obedience. Caleb and Joshua, these great men of the faith, believed God when he said um, he would take them into the land. They believed God when they were faced with opposition from every side, including from their own leadership and their own people. They were able to look back at history and see how God had always kept his word to them and cared for them, and they believed him. They remained steadfast through decades of suffering along with their people in the wilderness, trusting that God would fulfill his plans for them in his perfect time, and they got to, re uh, to enjoy the rewards of that obedience um, as they at last go to that promised land. Now, God is the same yesterday and today and forever. The God of this story is our God as well. That means that their story can be our story too. Jesus tells us this in 2 Corinthians on your verse sheet. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. So let's pray. Lord God, you are great and you are good. I thank you so much, God, that even though you do call us into hard, hard places in our life, you promise that you will be with us and that makes all the difference. God, I am asking that you would um, mold us and shape us into women of faith, women of trust and obedience, women who can look at our present and our future and know that you hold us in your hand, that nothing is beyond your control, and that you have good plans for us, God. Um, we love you, and we thank you for being our guide, and I just pray for your hand of blessing over every woman's life in this room today, and it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>